the uh, first seven verses this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for what uh, you've given us. Thank you for your word. I pray today that it would cut us and that it would reveal areas of our life where uh, we need to repent. Uh, I pray that as we read this letter uh, to the church of Ephesus, that we would see where there are areas of this true in, in our church here. Uh, and that we would make sure that we're honoring you and making much of you in all that we do so that you could continue to, to keep our lampstand uh, going so that it could shine a light to, to our community and beyond. Uh, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So at the end of uh, chapter 1 last week, what John told us, and, and really what he told us throughout all of chapter 1, was that we need to look beyond what you and I can see and look to the risen Christ who holds all of history in his hands. So what you and I see right now on the surface, right, right out here in the world, it looks crazy it looks chaotic but behind the scenes we are told that jesus has everything under control right that he holds the churches in his hands and that he's in control of the angels and in revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20 it gives us this beautiful picture of jesus who's the first and the last the sovereign over human history from beginning to end that he's the force behind history and he's also the one causing history to happen so that it can fulfill his purposes He's the living one who holds the keys of death and Hades. So what it means is that you and I need not fear death. We need not fear persecution. That Jesus has uh, endured both of those things. That Jesus has emerged victoriously over those things. And that he has absolute power over this realm, but not only this realm, over the heavens as well. And what we find out is that Jesus tells John that, hey, you are standing at the beginning of the end times, and he's being commissioned to write down the things that he sees for our benefit. And what we said and what we saw in chapter 1 is the main thing John shows us is Jesus. That's what it's about. And at the beginning, he's telling us that this whole book, Revelation is all about Jesus. It's not a code book to decipher and figure out how all these events are going to shake down. It's not for us to watch CNN or Fox News or whatever it is and decide, hey, well, look at this bit, look at this bit, look at this bit. By the way, okay, don't send me the meme of Kamala in her purple dress with Revelation on it. That is not what that means. I, I got that this weekend. I was like, okay. It's funny. <laughs> But that's not what it means, okay? So that's not what this is about. It's, it's about Jesus, okay? 
Now, one of the things I want you to keep in mind now as we get into the seven letters is that we cannot read these seven letters as separate from the book of Revelation. Uh, a lot of us have probably been through a sermon series in the past uh, where a pastor has preached through the, ser- the, the seven letters, uh, and then at the end of chapter three, he just stopped and he didn't preach any further. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and in fact, I, I think that there's a lot of good to do that, because I think as we're going to see, as we look at these seven churches, we see a lot of parallels with our current churches, right? And, and these parallels expose many dangers in the modern church, right? One commentator put it this way, seven churches differ in so many ways from one another. Seven churches similar in so many ways to the churches in which we live and serve in America. And so what we see is many things about ourselves as we study these letters. But we have to keep in mind this. These were not seven different letters sent to seven different church, to churches. The, the letter of Revelation was one letter sent to all of these churches. Right? And so as Ephesus reads about its good deeds and its bad deeds, it's also reading about these other churches' good deeds and these bad deeds, right? Uh, the best I could think of or the best analogy I had would be like if we had modern letters that started in Stratford, right? And so Stratford would read their letters and they'd be like, okay, you're doing this good, you're doing this bad. And then they come to Gruber, you're doing this good, you're doing this bad. And then they come to us, right? And you're doing this good, and you're doing this bad. It just keeps going, right? From Perryton to Hooker all the way down. That's what the book of Revelation is, right? And so we would be sitting here reading all about the good things that we've done for, hey, thanks, Jesus. And then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, but we're doing all these things wrong. And all these other churches would be hearing the exact same things about us, going, oh, hey, man, Spearman's doing this well, but then I have this against you, right? That's what is going on here. So it's all one letter. So I want you to keep that in mind as we study it because I don't want us to then try to wrench this thing out of context because what happens is, is after verse chapter 3, when we get into symbolism and all those things, we tend to go, well, that's a different book. This was, a, you know, then this over here. It's all one book. It's all one letter sent to seven churches to tell them all the good they're doing, the bad they're doing, and then explain the things that are and the things that are to come. Okay? All right. So look at Revelation chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus, all seven of these letters will be addressed to an angel. And what I want you to know right off the bat, nobody knows what that means. Nobody. Uh, There's four interpretations. I'll, I'll fly through them very quickly. Number one, some people believe the angel in every church is referring to the pastor of that local church. Okay? And I know most of you think I'm very angelic. (coughs) But it's probably not that, right? Because nowhere in in the Bible is the word angelos, it's it's Greek for angel, used to describe a pastor. Um, Number two, some believe the angel refers to a prophet or a uh, delegated representative of, of the church. Right, so, so this angel functioned as an ambassador for the church, so to speak. Maybe. We don't know. Uh, some believe that the angel is the whole church. So, so not, just, uh, not just one angel. So, so in other words, it would be like the personification uh, of the church. And so if you're reading this in the Greek, the, the text would allow for you to say to the angel, which is the church in Ephesus. Right? Maybe. We don't know. Uh, another theory is the angel is the guardian angel of each church. Uh, and that could be, but then again, it doesn't make any sense why Jesus would address the letter to the church's guardian angel and not to the church itself. So the bottom line is this. 
we really don't know who the angel is, and that's okay. We don't need to know exactly who the angel is for us to understand the words of Jesus here in Revelation chapter 2. So it's to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus, at the time that John's writing this letter, had a population of around 250,000 people. Right? It was a huge city for the ancient world. Uh, one commentator said that it was the New York City of its time. And in Ephesus, worship of the Roman emperor was, was mandatory. So praying to whoever was in charge was normative. So think about it like this. We have presidential libraries in our country where uh, they, they build these, and then you can go and honor and celebrate the life of that president. But in Ephesus, they didn't have libraries. They had temples for leaders like Claudius and Julius Caesar uh, and Augustine, or Augustus, excuse me. And so if you're a Christian, every day you're walking past these temples to see people going in to worship and offer sacrifices to a man who is ruling in Rome. It's kind of a bizarre thing. But Ephesus also held one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of the goddess Diana, or another translation is the, the goddess Artemis. Construction of this temple began in 356 B.C. It took 120 years to build. It was 425 feet high, 225 feet wide, and there were uh, 425 feet long, excuse me. And there were 127 columns, 60 feet high. 36 of the 60 were overlaid with gold and jewels. If you don't know anything about Diana or Artemis, she was the goddess of fertility. And so essentially people would come there to worship her, and it was a, a sex cult for all intents and purposes. A, a lot of very um, degrading things happened in that place. And the Bible tells us that Christianity came to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila when Paul left them there on his way to Corinth. Paul then returned, and he pastored the church in Ephesus for over two years, and then when he left, he left Timothy to minister there, and it's believed that John, after exile on Patmos, returned to Ephesus to finish out his final years. And is there he wrote the gospel that bears his name, the gospel according to John. And some traditions say that he was buried in Ephesus as well. And the effect on the gospel is best seen in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. You can go look at it later, but if you remember, the gospel takes such a hold in Ephesus that it begins to affect the sale of gold idols to Diana or to Artemis, and people begin to riot and they almost burned the place down because it so affected their economy because people were getting saved going, I ain't worshiping Diana anymore, and money was drying up from the community. Which is just unbelievable to think about how the gospel could come in and affect something that strongly, but that's what happened. And I think the thing that I want you to see before we go any further is that it's important for us to remember that the city of Ephesus was not even remotely Christian. So there were no laws that existed to protect freedom of religious expression. The worship of false deities, namely the emperor, was mandated. So the only thing that these Christians could rely on was Christ himself. And Sam Storm says it this way, talking about the modern church, he says, It often appears to me that many Christians believe the church in America can survive only if it is afforded legislative protection. Only if certain Christian candidates are elected to national and local office. Only if the next pointee to the Supreme Court is pro-life. Only if prayer is restored to our public schools. And listen, I'm grateful for the laws that protect us. I am a fiscal, social, and moral conservative, but 
I'm afraid that we've come to depend on such political blessings, economic advantages, and legal protection that if it was taken away from us, that in their absence we would fear the destruction of the church. See, the church in Ephesus knew nothing of a constitution. They knew nothing of a First Amendment. They knew nothing of a right to vote. Yet, they thrived and they survived. So before we panic, before we lose heart about everything that's happening in the country, before we look around and go, oh, what's Biden going to do now? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? Christ is with his church. Notice what it says. He says that he holds um, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he holds the churches in his hands. He's walking in the midst of their circumstances. So there's no decision that is made that he does not see, no sermon that is preached that he does not evaluate, and no sin that is committed that he is unaware of. So Christ is with his church. So once again, I think Jesus is telling us through John, fear not. No matter what they legislate out or bring against you, it cannot stop Christ's church. We need rest in that. We need to stand on that, okay? All right, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but attested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All right, let's get down to verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the words, works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So since he's walking among them, he's aware of everything. So Christians, this should change your life, that small truth, that if Jesus is among us, he's aware of everything. The author of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, verse 13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, the illusion of secrecy is often what keeps sin going. The illusion of secrecy is often what strengthens sin. So what that means is that you and I oftentimes will stay in certain sins for longer than we should because we think nobody knows. Sin loves to thrive in the dark, and the best way that we can deal with sin is to take it and drag it out into the light and expose it so that it can be dealt with. And see, what a better way to destroy the power of sin than by understanding this simple truth right here. God sees everything. Everything. I mean, that's convicting to even me as a pastor. It's not just going, man, nobody knows what God sees everything. Nothing is hidden. And that's speaking to us as a church is that, that Jesus is in our midst and we, we hide nothing from him no matter what we think it is. And Jesus says, listen, I know your works. All of the Ephesian works and all of ours he sees. He, he sees our works and they testify to his presence in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21, the author says, Now may the God of peace who brought uh, again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever ever. Amen. So if Revelation was written to show us Jesus and strengthen unbelievers, uh, to strengthen believers' faith, 
The emphasis on words and deeds. Oh, excuse me. I had that right. If Revelation was written to show us Jesus and to strengthen unbelievers' faith, then the emphasis on works and deeds is very important. See, works do not save us. We're saved by grace through faith by the work of Jesus Christ. But listen, works are the criteria for genuineness in the Christian life. Right? One young hotshot author named Joseph L. Vincent in his book, The American Masquerade. <laughs> so we should understand that the converted Christians will have an awareness of their sinfulness and their need for Savior. They will trust in Christ as their Savior and have a desire to please Him out of appreciation for His grace and mercy. But listen to this. There will also be evidence of a transformational process taking place within them, which they're becoming more like Christ. So this is not to say that they are instantly perfect. It is simply to say that there's evidence of some change continually taking place, conforming them to the image of Christ. This is what it means, is that these believers didn't have their strength, and uh, they'd be strengthened by Jesus, right? And that because of their faith in Christ, there should be some evidence of change that they're growing, and their works are the criteria for the genuineness of their faith. So whoever has works, has faith, has works. So what he does is he commends the church in Ephesus on three different things, all right? Look with me, if you will. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and, and found them to be false. All right? So first off, he says, I know your works, I know your toil. The word toil looks to something like beyond just routine effort uh, and focuses on exertion to the point of exhaustion. Exhaustion. So apparently this church was uh, very active. They had a lot of programs. They had a lot of activities. They had lots of life, right? All their workers on Wednesday night were exhausted. That's what this means. It means it's something important for you and I today. It means that no matter how obscure your job is in this church, Jesus sees what you do. Jesus sees your works. So some of you do things that, that even I don't know about to help this church, and Jesus sees you. Jesus commends you. That, that visit to a widow, or that meal for a friend, or that anonymous donation to a struggling friend, or maybe just serving on a committee that you're like, man, that's the dumbest committee ever. Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Jesus says, hey, good job, right? Uh, I was talking to, to a friend about this this week. Even in our jobs, just the, the times that we think what we do is meaningless, but the way we go about it for Christ, Jesus sees. Jesus knows. He commends them on that right there. But the opposite is also true in the church. If Jesus sees, be sure you're serving for the right reason. Don't serve. Don't do something just so you can get a shout-out from the pulpit or the perks of having an important position in the church. Jesus sees. Jesus knows. So Jesus commends them for their hard work. And in verse 2 and 6, he commends them for their orthodoxy. Or in other words, he commends them for their right belief or their correct belief. So he says, first off, you cannot bear with those who are evil. So this isn't like a person who just slips and sins or a person who's maybe struggling and fighting against a particular sin. This is the person who is openly in rebellion towards Christ, but yet that person continues to call themselves a Christian. In other words, the Ephesians were intolerant of that sort of behavior. And so, so, so Jesus says, hey, you're intolerant of it, but then look what they did. It says that they tried and tested those who claimed to be apostles. 
So it says evil men and, and false apostles is referenced to the same group. So we don't know who they are, but apparently there was a group of people that said, hey, uh, I'm one of the original apostles, capital A. I've seen Jesus. I walk with Jesus. And Paul told them in Acts chapter 20, 29 and 30, before he left, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So apparently this happened. And they were ready for it. But notice what they did. They, they rejected them, but they only rejected them after they tested them. So they were strict, but they were fair. So they listened to what these men had to say. They studied the scriptures to see if anything contradicted it. And then they found these men to be wanting. In verse 6, it says um, that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Right? That this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So let's start right there. Jesus does hate certain things. There are all the things that Jesus finds as an abomination, and he hates those things. And you don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were. They're mentioned again in verse 15. We know that the name is derived from two Greek words. Victory, which is Nikos, and people, which is Laos. And the best guess we have is they were evidently antinomian, which is just a fancy way of, of, uh, of saying um, that, 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 uh, that it's all under grace, right? So live however you want, do whatever you want, that it's all under grace. It's close to what we would refer to as hyper-grace teaching today. So most likely what they did was they participated in the idolatry worshiping the Roman Empire. They participated in the idolatry and the, the things that were happening at the Temple of Night. And just said, hey man, it's all good. I can be a Christian and participate in these things. It's all under grace. But that's really all we know. But apparently the Ephesians weren't duped. Sam Storm says they, all, they knew that Christian charity could not tolerate Paul's teaching. See, Jesus hates theological and moral compromise. So anytime we appeal to grace to justify blatant sin, our Lord hates that. So anytime we go, hey, I know what I'm about to do is a sin, but it's going to be covered under grace after I'm done, so I'm going to do it anyways. Jesus hates that. Any attempt to rationalize sin by saying there's liberty in Christ to, to do and live however I want, our Lord hates that. So it means as Christians, we should engage our culture. Don't get me wrong. We should be out there. We should be loving it. We should be engaging it. But if the world begins to drain you of your strength to resist temptations, or it diminishes the purity of your relationship with Christ, it's time for you to walk away or step away from whatever that thing is that you're engaging in. Right? And then finally, verse 3, he, condemn, he commends them for their endurance. Look what he says. I know you're enduring patiently. And bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So patient endurance is most likely a reference to their endurance under persecution. Ephesus is not even remotely Christian. So they're enduring under persecution and hostility, and they continue to stand strong and not give in and not conform to the culture. So that means that Derek Thomas says, in the face of opposition, these Christians had continued their witness to Jesus Christ. They had not yielded to the pressure to conform. They stood firm during the cross that came in the way of their whole testimony. So it means some suffered persecution. Some probably died. Some were persecuted and survived, but it was all for the name of Jesus Christ. 
They said, Jesus is more precious than what I'm losing. Jesus is more precious than my reputation. Jesus is more precious than my business. And Jesus is more precious than my life. Jesus is the most important thing. So in other words, what we see is that the Ephesians were people who believed correctly, right? Orthodoxy, which led to right behavior. Orthopraxy is what we would call it. That the two go together. That right belief will lead to right behavior. Right belief that treasures Jesus above all that makes him supreme, that makes him the point of every sermon, will give us the strength to endure no matter what comes our way. It always leads to right behavior. Right? Look at verse 4, though. So these are the things that they're doing good, right? Their, their works, their toil. Uh, they, they tested those who are evil. They've endured, but then we've got to get to the bad part. Verse 4. But, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. So remember... Um, the man loved the chapters. Remember there from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So despite all these good things they did, Jesus says, but you've lost your first love. Despite of all that, you've lost your first love. Now, listen, there's no agreement really among scholars as to, to what love they abandoned, right? And, and so did they lose their love for the Lord, right? Did they lose the zeal they had for Jesus that they had right after their conversion, maybe? Or did they lost their love for others? Most likely, it's the latter. Most likely, they lost their love for one another, right? In, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul said this in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So, so apparently this church loved one another deeply. And see, in verse 3, they're pay, praised for enduring patiently for the, his name's sake, for the name of Jesus. So, so in order to endure for the name of Jesus, I would think that would require some level of devotion or affection. Right? Uh, a nominal believer, a believer who does not love Jesus deeply, is not going to go through persecution uh, or even fear uh, or risk death for the name of Jesus, right? They're going to conform, they're going to fold like a card table when it comes time to it. Um, so if they didn't love Jesus, why did they put up with all those things? Why did Jesus commend them for it? And so in verse 5, they're told to repent and do the works they did at first. So what this seems to suggest is this is that their lost love was for one another. And that their lost love can be rekindled by acts of service and by deeds of compassion towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. But Sam Storm says, I also don't think we have to choose. See, lack of love for our fellow man can indicate a problem in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus could have said, how dare you claim to love me, but then lack love for your brothers and sisters. So here's what a lot of people believe happened, and I, I think it fits. Was that the Ephesians' desire for orthodoxy, for right belief, created a climate of suspicion and mistrust. So in other words, they turned into theology police, trying to root out bad theology and going after people who believe something that they felt like was wrong. So listen, even pursuit of truth can sour our affections for one another. And as a young pastor, I've been there before. I've made that mistake of, of wanting to protect right beliefs so much 
that, that I've either created conflict or I've created other theology police to go around and be like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. See, we can overcorrect those who may be young in their faith, who are just genuinely loving the Lord and then just be naive in what they believe. And we have to be careful with that, right? We have to be careful with that. We should never allow us becoming the theology police to, to, to run somebody off or, or to hurt somebody because we're not being loving in how we address those issues, okay? Now listen, that should also not be his excuse to say, see man, all we need is love, Byron. Details don't matter, right? This is no way justifying theological laxity. Christianity includes both right belief and right practice. So Jesus is telling his church, hey, if you love me, your correct worship of me should be leading to right behavior in the way we care for others. So in other words, the more we get to know Jesus, and the more we get to know who he is, and the more we desire to worship him correctly, that should then humble us to the ground. Because the more we understand that we don't understand and that we have a long way to go, the humbler we become as believers. See, the more we understand the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins, that we were not and are not good enough to earn his love. And the more we understand that, the more we then extend that same love to others. The more we get that Jesus sacrificed for us, the more that we then sacrifice for others. So, so don't make the mistake of thinking we cure one problem in a way that creates another. So Jesus said both are important, but don't love right beliefs so much that you forget about loving one another. And that's exactly what they had done. So what Jesus tells them is this. He says, first off, remember where you have fallen. So he says, look back and remember where your zeal for the Lord and for each other was at an all-time high. Remember when you loved each other in that church and it was rich and full. Remember that time. Remember what it was that drove you to love one another. Remember those things. And then Jesus says, repent. Right? A lot of people love to say, well, Jesus never said to repent in the Bible. Well, guess what? He's going to tell you to repent seven times in the next couple weeks. It's in every letter he says something about how we need to repent, how we need to stop what we're doing and turn back. And remember, repentance is not a divine spanking. It's just our way of saying, okay, Jesus, I see where what you want is better than what I'm after. Right? So, so they would be like, hey, I see where my pursuit of correct doctrine is hurting my brothers and sisters because I'm not loving them, and you want me to love them with correct doctrine. So, okay, I repent, I turn back, and I do it the way that you've told me to do it. And that's what he says, is repent. Turn around and start cultivating the affection that you previously had. And then finally, what does he say? He says, do. Do what you used to do. Go back to loving your brothers and sisters. Go back to sacrificially giving for one another. See, it's important for the Ephesians, and it's important for us in Spearman in 2021 to cultivate a love for both Christ and our fellow man. Because Jesus says failure to do this will result in the removal of your lampstand. Jesus says either go back to loving your brothers and sisters the way that you used to, or I'm going to remove your public witness to the community. Your influence on the, on the community of Ephesus will go away. 
says, I'm coming to you. And this is not a reference to his second coming. This is a reference to his coming to that church in judgment. So what it could even mean is that Jesus is threatening the end of his congregation's historical existence. That's a frightening thought, is it not? It scares me. And that's enough to, that I hope it is enough to convince us that love in the body of Christ, right? Loving one another right here in this room is important, right? Value correct belief. Value correct thinking about Jesus. But don't do that in such a way that you forget to love your brothers and sisters. We must love one another. And that means that we always need to make sure that we resolve our petty disputes, our petty quarrels, all the little things that happen in small churches all the time, that we shove it out, we root it out, we deal with it because we don't want this to be us. And then look what he tells him in verse 7. He, he leads by, by encouraging them. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, so the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, is a clause that will be used in all seven letters. It was used by Jesus, who borrowed it from Isaiah, who borrowed it from Jeremiah, who borrowed it from Ezekiel, all from the Old Testament. So in other words, what Jesus is doing at the close of this letter is he's strongly urging them to listen to everything that he's just said. So in other words, this isn't just to the church in Ephesus. It's to all the churches that are going to be reading this letter. It's to our church right here, right now. He who has ears, let him hear what Jesus says to his churches. He said, those that conquer will eat of the tree of life. That's encouragement. Those who endure to the end. What I want you to know is that the tree of life is not the end itself, right? That, that's one of the biggest things that we've done wrong, I believe, in, in our churches, is that we've said, hey, come to Jesus and get eternal life, man. And so everybody goes to get their get-out-of-hell-free card because they want to live forever. And we fail to preach that we are not pursuing heaven. We're pursuing something greater. You and I are pursuing Jesus. Amen. Heaven without Jesus would not be heaven. The goal and the aim is not heaven. We're pursuing the one who first pursued us. The goal for you and me is to see Jesus one day. That's what we're after. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, when you're tempted to give up, when you're tempted to give in, when you're tired of loving one another, remember the true life. Remember the goal is being with me and dwelling with me and worshiping me forever and ever. That's what we're after, brothers and sisters. But there's something else at play here, too. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Revelation, cites the word of a man named Colin Himmer. And what Himmer says is that there was something analogous to the tree of life in Ephesus. So, so the reference to tree, it's a Greek word, it's, it's zulon, of life, may be an allusion to the cross of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Acts 10.39, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Acts 13.29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So we know that in the New Testament, explicit references are made to Zulon, to tree, to the tree that Christ died on. And so the Greek word for, for cross is sto, uh, storos, 
It's never used in Revelation. And so what they think is that there's something going on there with the Temple of Diana. So the foundation of the Temple of Diana was built on an ancient tree shrine. And there was coins that had been found in Ephesus that, that had an image of a, of a date palm on them, which symbolized the goddess and her city, Ephesus. But the temple was also a place of refuge or asylum for criminals. So if you're a criminal, you're on the run from the law, you could go to the temple of Diana, and you could find refuge and solace, and nobody could touch you, and you could live there. And so it became kind of this sanctuary for some of the worst people in society. And the word for refuge is soteria. Throughout the New Testament, the word for our salvation is the exact same word. It's soteria. It's, it's where we get our word soterology, which is just a fancy word to say the study of salvation. And so what John's doing here is very important. Is that he's drawing a contrast here uh, between the cross as the tree of life that is our place of refuge for repentant sinners. In contrast with the temple of Diana. The Temple of Diana was a place of refuge and marked asylum for the unrepentant criminal. Diana's tree gave immunity and license, though, to continue his life of rebellion and crime. So a criminal would run to Diana's temple and they wouldn't change. They can continue to do the exact same things that they've always been caught up in. And as a result, just made things worse in the community of Ephesus. But on the other hand, Christ's tree of refuge grants the repentant sinner eternal forgiveness and the power of the Spirit to pursue holiness. The criminal fleeing refuge only corrupted the city even more, but when the Ephesian Christians heard Jesus speak this promise to them, they could appreciate a future city one day governed by God himself. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is the only tree that can bring life to you is the tree that I hung and died on. The only tree to find refuge in is the cross of Jesus Christ. So today I ask you, do you know Jesus? I mean, have you found your refuge in the tree of life? Have you looked to Christ crucified for your sins? And so if you haven't, would you to trust in Jesus today? Don't, don't leave until you grab somebody and say, hey, I came in here, I didn't know Jesus, I was pursuing something else for refuge, it wasn't working, but today I heard what Jesus has done for me, and you can be changed, and you can be saved as you walk out this door today. Perhaps you've forsaken your love for your fellow brother or sister in Christ in this room. And today, maybe you just need to remember the height from where you've fallen, and repent and do the things that you did at first. So I don't know what that looks like for you. That maybe needs a, a phone call, a text. It might need a, a hug of a brother and sister here in a minute as we sing a song, right? But maybe there's just some areas that we need to get some things cleaned up. And then we begin to love one another the way that Christ has asked us to. Maybe you just came in here today and you needed encouragement that maybe nobody else sees the things that you're doing for Jesus, but that Jesus says, I see encouraged in the fact that I see you and I know what you're doing. Nobody else may be paying attention, but I do. And that's really all that matters. Maybe you just needed to hear that Jesus sees, and maybe there's a sin you need to drag out of the darkness and bring it into the light. But you need to repent today. Whether that's to confessing that sin to a friend or, or, or running to Jesus and just saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, you know, and leaving that thing and walking away. And then finally, I just ask that we be a church that loves correct belief, that leads to correct behavior. And that correct behavior would be that we allow our life to 
shine for the glory of God. Starting first by loving one another in this church and letting it spill out those doors to the communities around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for what it shows us. Father, may we be people that love one another deeply. Father, thank you for the tree in which you died, the tree where sinners find refuge. No other name, no other refuge, no other Savior can promise the change that only Jesus can. So I pray if anyone doesn't know you today, that they would love Jesus forever. For us as believers, I pray that we would love one another deeply. My Father, we would hate our sin and not keep it in the darkness, but drag it out into the light so that it can rule. My Father, this church would shine brightly. Beauty of spirit in the world. In the name of Christ. Amen. If you would please stand.